I would temper some of those points with the fact that AI at the moment doesn't seem to really be up to that standard. I know Putin has declared that whoever is the leader in AI will be the leader of the world. Uh, That's a little bit overblown because, yes, a country may deploy, you know, autonomous warbots into the battlefield, but that doesn't mean that its adversaries only option is to deploy warbots of its own. There are other factors at play. There are other ways that you can do damage with non-robotic technology that continue to be very, very effective and will continue to be effective even in the context of having, you know, unmanned battle tanks uh, you mean nukes? on the other side. Huh? Do you mean nukes? Well, you can have nukes, you can have long-range missile systems, you can have jamming systems. Today's episode is brought to you guys by something I'm personally incredibly passionate about. I remember the last time we went to the zoo, the tiger was walking back and forth. He looked nuts. He looked like he hated his life because he did. He was in this tiny little exhibit, nowhere near big enough, and was clearly going out of his mind. Today's show sponsor, Big Cat Rescue, is a Tampa-focused charity creating the world's first augmented reality zoo to take these incredible animals out of zoos and let them stay in the wild while bringing kids and parents closer to the experience of what it means to be wild, natural, and free. This is something I was passionate about. We gave them a massively discounted rate because this is such an important mission. ARZOO.ME for more details. That's ARZOO.ME for more details. And now, on with the program. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors. We're big on health and biotech for a reason. It amplifies everything. Disruptors.fm slash qualia. Use coupon code disruptors. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Remember those creepy Geico commercials? Private eyes are watching you. They see your every move. Well, today we're diving deep into that and much, much more. We're talking drones, eyes in the sky, and the future of surveillance. Arthur Holland Michel's on the program. He's a writer and researcher focused on drone surveillance, AI, robotics, the arts, immigration, and much more. He's written for all the best publications, Wired, Vice, Fast Company, Motherboard, Al Jazeera, US News, and he's the author of the recent Eyes in the Sky, looking at the advance of aerial surveillance tech and what it's leading to for the future. He's the director for the Center of the Study of the Drone, a research center at Bard College, which he helped co-found, which is exactly what we're going to talk about in today's episode, where we'll discuss what is the cutting edge of drones, and drone warfare. What are the pros and cons of drone development? Why lethal autonomous weapons are so dangerous, but are not just around the corner, despite what some people think? Which aspects of surveillance and privacy Arthur's most worried about, and why? The power of the press to keep governments honest? What to actually think about consumer drone delivery? The formula for the perfect dictatorship. And we'll address the question of, is a minority report-like world really inevitable? This one was a fun one to record. I'm fascinated and terrified by drones. And having someone on the program with so much experience and foresight into the space was a lot of fun. I know you guys are going to enjoy this. If you want to support us and the work we're doing here at The Disruptors, then consider becoming a patron. If you've looked and paid attention to our most recent episodes, we've been experimenting with a new model for patrons where we'll offer up three or four bonus questions for patrons only at the end of the episode. If you're interested in getting access to those questions like big contrarian predictions, the best advice, and what fields to focus on if you were young today, then consider becoming a patron. You can support us at patreon.com slash disruptorsfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Support us on there. Help us make this sustainable. And now without further ado, I give you Arthur Holland Michel. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. 
So drones, what's the deal? Why did you get your your career is based around drones at this point? What was the what was the origin story? What got you excited? So I was uh, an undergraduate at Bard College. It's a small liberal arts school in upstate New York. And I was a history major. And I was in New York City one summer between my junior year and my senior year doing an internship. And I was sitting in a bar with a friend. Now, for a couple of years, I had been reading the New York Times at breakfast every day. And it felt like every week there was a story about drones, particularly drones being used to carry out targeted strikes uh, in Pakistan predominantly, but also in Somalia and Yemen. There was also talk about drones being used for civilian commercial purposes in, in the U.S. airspace system. Admittedly, they're not the same types of drones. The, the civilian ones are much smaller. The military ones are very large. But I just was fascinated by this technology. I felt like it raised all of these questions that were so urgent and yet also unfamiliar. And somehow, sitting in that bar, I just got a flash of inspiration and I decided that Bard College, the university where I was studying, needed to study this topic. They needed to look into it because I felt like we had the best sort of approach to studying complex topics like this. And so I said, we're going to create a center for the study of the drone right there at Bard College. And uh, it started out just as a sort of a seminar series. We created a little blog. And then by the time I graduated in May of 2013, so about eight months later, uh, the topic had just kind of blown up and it felt like we needed to keep going. And so I, I continued working for the college uh, the day after I graduated. That was uh, six years ago. And the, the issue has only become more complicated, more difficult, more challenging, and more urgent. I mean, just this morning, we received news that Iran has shot down a very large U.S. spy drone uh, over the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, I mean, this is uncharted territory. And how do we, how do we think about that? We'll, we'll get to some other stuff as well. But shooting down a drone, it's much less than shooting down a plane with people in it. And yet, is that, a, is that an act of war? Is that an act of, is that an act of get off my property, Clint Eastwood style? What is that? Well, it's a really tricky question and the jury's still out. This is the first time that a US adversary has shot down such a large US drone. Uh, and certainly the first time that one has shot down a drone in the midst of such a tense moment in the relationship between these two countries. You're right that there's a somewhat lower threshold in this case because there were no U.S. service members aboard that aircraft. That being said, you know, there have been cases where uh, U.S. aircraft with pilots on board have been shot down and the U.S. has not retaliated either. So it's a very tricky geopolitical, strategic calculation that's made. And that's a discussion that is literally happening right now in the White House, in the National Security Council. My guess is that while it will escalate the situation somewhat, it will not be the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I don't think this will be the, 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 the match that lit up the whole war. Are we talking an angry tweet? Are we talking sanctions? Are we talking something more? There has already been an angry tweet. Uh, I'm sure Trump there's been like said. 15. Yeah, President Trump said Iran should not have done that. We'll have to see. Uh, you know, I, I'm, there will be some kind of reaction. I mean, this is a $130 million drone. It is one of the most expensive aircraft in the U.S. arsenal. You don't shoot one of those birds down and get off scot-free. It's like scratching the, scratching the dick that drives the Lamborghini to the, to the bar. It's, yeah. uh, th there's some extra rules involved. But then yeah, the, the, fl the flip side's even bigger. So shooting down a drone, problematic. Mm. Using a drone to shoot down civilians or combatants, more problematic and questionable. How do you think about it on the military side? We'll get into commercial eventually. Sure. It's, it, it's challenging. In theory... Striking a target with a drone that has a missile aboard it is no different to using a manned aircraft or someone with a sniper rifle. Um, There's no risk, though. 
or, or a helicopter gunship. Exactly. So it really depends on the context. If it's the, 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 the areas where the use of drones has been most controversial is in areas where the U.S. is technically not at war. Because the U.S. is not at war in these areas, it can use drones without requiring a, the sort of okay from Congress. And that raises the question of whether a country, by using drones, can just fight its wars wherever it wants, however it wants, and whenever it wants. And, and that is tremendously problematic. Um, so the, it's like the, a CIA hitman that gets caught on YouTube. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's very much like that. There's also the, the, the strategic side of it. You know, is it uh, prudent to uh, kill hundreds of people with drones as a way to uh, really take apart an, an enemy terrorist organization? Because there are many who say that it only makes the problem worse. Uh, uh, a young a teenager, say, sees their family members or their neighbors being killed with drones and they say, hey, you know, the, the U.S. shouldn't be doing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the cause. I'm, I'm, I'm going to join this organization. In a way, it could potentially make these organizations stronger. And then uh, a third question that, is, that makes this also so complex and unfamiliar is that these drones are operated from very, very far away. So the pilots who are operating a lot of these drones are actually within the United States, and they're controlling aircraft that are six, 7,000 miles away. There are lots of concerns that because the soldiers are so far removed from what's happening on the ground, they don't take it as seriously, perhaps, as a Marine with a sniper rifle who is closer to the action. They might be a little bit more flippant about hitting that, that, that button uh, to fire the missile. But I've spoken to a lot of drone pilots and they will assure you that that's not the case. In fact, they say that they spend a lot more time staring at their targets, getting to know them, than pretty much any other kind of pilot. Because a jet fighter flies over the target, drops the bombs, and, and then it's gone. But a, a drone pilot may be staring at a target for days and weeks on end. There are many reports of drone pilots even having forms of PTSD from their experiences. So, but all that implies there's a pilot in the loop, which in the future, will that even be the case? You know, I, I think it's going to be a very long time until the, the Pentagon is comfortable saying, okay, drone, go to this general area and kill who, whichever enemy you find who you think is probably a legitimate target. You know, generally, military commanders like to have very tight control over their over their over their people. You know, over over the the, the aircraft and weapons that they're deploying. They don't want soldiers going AWOL. They don't want soldiers acting without accountability. And I don't think we're going to, for at least a few years, be at that point where a commander can trust a robotic drone that much to that extent. But certain things are going to be automated. So it's going to only be a couple of years until U.S. jet fighters that do have a pilot inside will be accompanied by what are called loyal wingmen, which are these jet drones that can sort of act as flying accomplices. So the pilot might say, okay, uh, loyal wingman drone number one, you go and explore that area and tell me if you see anything suspicious and relay the video back to me. Drone number two, you go and uh, jam those enemy radars so that they don't see me and shoot me down. It's a way of sort of extending human capacity rather than replacing the human whole hog. But let's play devil's advocate. The only thing worse than making a mistake is trying to is falling up behind. Let's say let's say Putin puts uh, autonomous drones with guns into the battlefield. How quickly are people going to think about? Oh well, we need to have that too. Otherwise, we're behind. It's the it's the steroids and competition argument. Yeah, that's that's certainly the concern. There is a lot of discussion about how AI will give rise to a new arms race, the likes of which we haven't seen since the height of the Cold War. Um, but I would temper some of those points with the 
fact that AI at the moment doesn't seem to really be up to that standard. I know Putin has declared that whoever is the leader in AI will be the leader of the world. Uh, That's a little bit overblown because, yes, a country may deploy, you know, autonomous warbots into the battlefield, but that doesn't mean that its adversary's only option is to deploy warbots of its own. There are other factors at play. There are other ways that you can do damage with non-robotic technology that continue to be very, very effective and will continue to be effective even in the context of having, you know, unmanned battle tanks uh, you mean nukes? on the other side. Huh? Do you mean nukes? Well, you can have nukes, you can have long-range missile systems, you can have jamming systems. But the drones are so much cheaper. Doesn't it democratize access to violence? Well, it's actually a little bit of a fallacy that drones are much, much cheaper. Certainly a U.S. Reaper drone, which is sort of the currently the standard U.S. strike drone, is a lot cheaper than uh, a jet fighter, probably by an order of magnitude. But it has nowhere near the capabilities of a jet fighter. And it's still expensive enough that you're not just going to, you know, let loose and wild with these drones. I mean, they cost $15 million each. So uh, it's going to be not long before you decide that actually, you know, by the time 10 of them have been shot down, you're really losing the battle. One of the concerns, though, is that we will get to the point where that cost calculus changes and we have swarms of drones. Uh, I've spent quite a lot of time doing research on anti-drone technology, also known as counter-drone technology. And there are a lot of ways to shoot down drones, even, you know, small commercially available drones. But there are no counter-drone technologies available today that would be effective against a swarm of, say, 500 Russian drones that are coming in at you and they each have a five-pound explosive on them. That being said, people are working very quickly on some kind of solution. Speaking of which, there was that drone at the airport incident. I've got to imagine we're going to start having more of these. Talk about the anti-drone technologies, where we're at with that. Sure. The incident that you're referring to uh, happened in late December of last year. Um, Actually, on the busiest travel day of the year at one of the busiest airports in the world, Gatwick Airport in, in London. And someone, we still don't know who, flew a drone repeatedly over the runways. Obviously, if there's a drone flying over the runways, and this, again, is a small commercially available drone, it's probably about this big. You can't land any aircraft, you can't take any aircraft off. And so the airport was closed for 36 hours. And I got a lot of calls from reporters that day, and they all asked the same question. I mean, isn't, is there nothing we can do? And the answer is, it's, it's harder than you think. One, you can't shoot at these drones because you're in the middle of one of the most densely populated areas in the world. And if you shoot at the drone, you're going to have to use 50 bullets, say. Maybe one bullet hits the drone, 49 bullets are going to have to come down somewhere. Uh, So that's unsafe. You can use uh, jamming, what's called jamming. It's a technique to basically interrupt the radio communications link between the drone and the person operating the drone. Uh, Gatwick did not have one of those systems on hand. There are also questions about how effective those systems are at range. And there is always the possibility that the drone doesn't even have a radio communications link. There have been experiments with lasers to shoot down drones. Again, very, very dangerous in a civilian setting. That makes much more sense in, say, an active battlefield. Uh, experiments with nets, for example. Um, there what about are, suicide drones? You just drive a couple kamikazes into another drone. Of course, suicide drones too. But for anybody who's had any experience flying a drone, and I'm, I'm sure there are many listeners to this program who have drones of their own, they'll be able to tell you very quickly that is much harder than it sounds. I mean, if you have a drone that is hovering in place, nice and smooth and steady, yeah, you could probably crash into it. But what if your adversary's drone is operating in a very evasive way? 
some of these drones are incredibly fast and agile. I mean, if you've ever seen drone racing, these drones can do 80 miles an hour and somersaults and backflips and all sorts of incredible things uh, like that. So there are a few companies that claim that they, can, they have kamikaze drones that are effective. Also companies that claim that, they, uh, that their drones, which have net cannons mounted underneath the drone, can go and hunt the uh, intruding drone and shoot it down with a net. One of those companies has received a lot of venture capital funding. But again, I'm still somewhat unconvinced. Apparently, these systems operate on AI, so you're not even using a human pilot to shoot down the enemy drone. But I sort of want to see it before I believe it. And again, that will be effective if you're only going up against one other drone. But what if you've got five interceptor drones and your adversary has 10 drones? Then you've lost the battle, right? I mean, it's much harder to play defense than it is to play offense at almost anything. Absolutely. And this is no exception. So when you think about drones, there's a lot of pros. There's some cons as well. What are the big ones that don't get highlighted enough on both? In terms of the pros, people are, are often talking uh, a lot about delivery drones. Jeff Bezos made uh, global headlines in 2013 when he announced that he was going to start delivering goods to con- customers uh, using drones in 30 minutes or less from the moment of purchase. Uh, There have been experiments with medical delivery drones, for example. So Rwanda has a very extensive program where they use drones to deliver urgent medical goods, vaccines, blood transfusions, uh, urgent medications to remote clinics. That takes much less time than it would to transport those same goods over roads. Those are the popular ones. But actually, some of the real sort of uh, positive utility of drones comes from things that are a little less sexy, if you will. So infrastructure inspections is a really good one. Previously, if you had a bridge, it was getting kind of old, you wanted to get a sense of whether uh, it was still structurally integral, you'd have to send someone up in a harness. Same goes for a cell tower or a power line. Now, a lot of companies are using drones to inspect those sorts of structures. They can do it very quickly. Uh, they can do it very cheaply. And most importantly, they don't put anyone's lives at risk. Uh, another one is insurance appraisals. People don't really think about this very often. But after, say, a really heavy storm, uh, you will have a geographic area where lots of houses have sustained damage to their rooftops. Previously, the insurance companies would have to send appraisers to climb up these rooftops, onto these rooftops, and inspect visually the damage and take photographs and send those back. Every year, multiple appraisers fell off rooftops doing exactly that and sustained really serious injuries or died. Now, the insurance industry often uses drones to do exactly that. You spend $2,000 on a camera drone. It takes five minutes to do the inspection. You have really high quality data. If you have some computer processing software um, or image processing software, rather, you will be able to create a very detailed 3D model of the rooftop. So that's actually better data than you would have been able to get with a, with a human appraiser. And no one's, no one's life is at risk. You can do some of things with agriculture, for example, uh, conservation. Uh, drones have been proven to be very effective for animal population counts. Uh, and much less invasive than having human counters. I mean, the list really goes on. That's on the positive side. On the negative side, well, you can ruin 400,000 people's holiday travel plans by shutting down one of the busiest airports in the world for 36 hours. You can go a step further, uh, and not to put an idea in anybody's head, but you could strap explosives to that drone and try and fly it into someone. In 2013, there was this famous incident where Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, was uh, giving a public speech in an open-air venue, and um, someone flew a drone within a few meters of her. Now, this drone did not have any explosives on it, but everybody suddenly realized, wait a second, if that drone had a grenade on it, they probably could have killed her. You can like also the, Ken- the Kennedy moment. You don't ride in the you don't ride in the presidential yeah, exactly. car with the top off anymore. Very much so. Uh, the, the, as soon as that happened, probably the security details for every major world leader said, "Oh, okay, we've got to be looking up 
as well. <laughs> you know, we've got to take into account the, the sky as well as all the other things that we have to worry about. You can use drones to intrude on people's privacy. I mean, that is just the fact. There have been dozens of incidents in the last few years where people have been in their apartments in high-rise buildings, just you know, going about their business, or in some cases getting changed or coming out of the shower, and there's been a, a drone hovering right outside, taking 4K video of what they're doing. And invariably in those cases, when the, the victims call the police, by the time the cops show up, the drone is long gone, and so is the person operating it. You can also use drones for government surveillance, and we know that that can sometimes be a concern too. You know, by and large, law enforcement agencies are not trying to needlessly intrude on people's privacy when they don't need to, but history has shown that uh, surveillance tools in the hands of governments can sometimes be abused, and uh, drones are no exception to that. Um, those are some of the main ones, I'd say. And governments like to sweep up as much data as they can. It's, uh, it's like a fishing expedition, so to speak. If we can find anything there, perfect, then we have people to prosecute. How do you think about that from the US side and then from the China side? We've got social credit, we've got NSA. Yeah. Yeah. They're both two sides of a different coin. You know, in a way, they're both scary. Uh, they're scary for somewhat different reasons. Uh, the U.S. does not have a, an incredibly strong track record of keeping its surveillance technology tightly controlled and only using it in ways that uh, align perfectly with, you know, your or my sense of what counts as a legitimate use. That continues to be the case today. And... In light of that, it's particularly worrying that a lot of these surveillance technologies are incredibly powerful. I mean, the U.S. is really, along with Israel and China, uh, at the very forefront of developing surveillance technology. It always has been. Fortunately, in the United States, uh, there are some very robust structures in place that can be used as a counterweight to any potential abuses. We have a constitution. We have the Fourth Amendment, which protects everybody against unreasonable search and seizure. So if you're doing something in your own home, a policeman cannot just knock down the door without a warrant, because that would be a, a violation of your privacy and of your Fourth Amendment rights. If you look at China, on the other hand, none of those controls on government power exist. And so they really have uh, no reason to hold themselves back. And particularly worrying on that note is that China has really advanced its capabilities in the last few years. I mean, this wasn't a discussion even three years ago because China was still somewhat behind the curve in terms of its CCTV technology, for example, in terms of its um, you know, social media monitoring activity. Uh, now, what we're realizing is that China isn't just using this extensively. It's actually a global leader in this technology. And not only that, whereas by and large, uh, U.S. firms uh, have tended to be a little more discerning about who they sell their surveillance technology to. Now, that's not true across the board, but it, it, there is some level of accountability because companies are cognizant of sort of the public. Um, perception side of things, China will probably sell its surveillance gear to anybody who wants to pay for it. So we're not just talking about a contained issue in the western provinces of China where the Uyghur population uh, is concentrated and where a lot of the surveillance activity is concentrated. We're talking about any autocratic state that could find a use and a very dangerous use for this gear. And so we really need to be talking about China. And I think we have every reason to be worried. Today's Disruptors podcast is brought to you guys by Pantheon.io. Whether you're developing a personal brand, building your business, or working with a large organization, online presence, guys, it's critical to success. Pantheon's the number one leading web ops provider. They help more than 285,000 websites, and they're trusted by small businesses, startups, rated as the leading products for small businesses and enterprise, and one of the top 10 software products of 2019 by G2 Crowd. Pantheon's web ops platform helps you build, manage, and optimize the most important brand asset, your website. Because let's face it, if you're 
site sucks or it's incredibly slow, consumers aren't happy. Whether you're just beginning to build that dream or already well on your way, Pantheon can help deliver the best future-proof experience for everyone. Listener offer, guys. Check it out. Pantheon.io slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S to learn how Pantheon can help you power your online presence and make it that much more awesome. Again, that's Pantheon.io slash disruptors. Consider supporting them to support independent media like us. Help us make this sustainable. Pantheon.io slash disruptors for more details. And in theory, authoritarianism, dictatorship, it's really a function of the ability to monitor and process information, both of which have exponentially increased in the the past 10, 20 years. Yeah. Do these technologies ultimately make the, do they ultimately make those type of states, which in the past seemed impossible to last? impossible to unlast to get rid of because the monitoring can be so extreme? There are in a way two answers to that question. One answer is that yes, absolutely. Surveillance technology has the potential to make power more vicious, more entrenched, and it has the potential to further rig that contest between the weak and the strong. There's no doubt about that. And that's the pessimistic analysis of where we stand right now. And I think it's a very valid analysis. But there is a different way of seeing things. A lot of the reason why surveillance technology is becoming so powerful today is because of digital technologies. And digital technologies have also empowered the population tremendously and have connected us in all sorts of ways that uh, just the a decade or so ago, we wouldn't have thought possible. These have given us ways to uh, keep power uh, to account. They have given us ways to organize and speaking truth to power. And they have given us ways ultimately to find uh, routes around surveillance technology. We have encrypted messaging apps, for example. Even my smartphone has a level of encryption upon it. And the uh, manufacturer of uh, the phone is not going to hand my data over to the cops uh, without a court order. That creates a natural firewall that didn't necessarily exist at a time when all of our calls and communications went through physical wires under the ground that the police could literally tap into. So, you know, I, I, I think that there is some reason to be cautiously optimistic on that front. And then a final piece is that really in the last couple of years, we have begun to take notice of the fact that our privacy is facing an existential threat and that we need to be much more judicious about how we give up our data, for example. People are spending more time demanding that Facebook act responsibly with our personal data. Same goes for Google and other uh, companies. We have a much higher level of public consciousness about these things. I think the golden age of companies and governments sucking up our data, whole hog, uh, are perhaps numbered for that reason. And in theory, as a result, you could see something of a sea change where people realize that the policy has to catch way up to the technology. And and we would in theory, begin to see robust protections come into place as a result of that. But it's still a little hard to tell. So I am, as I said, both pessimistic and at the same time optimistic about our prospects looking forward. Is that a reality or a perception, though? Because what I see is very few people quit Facebook. That most people are like, oh, God, this is the worst. Let's bitch and whine about it like our boss or the fact that I left my shoes out and it rained. But you know what? That's how it is. Mm. And I can look at cat pictures. There's that side of things yeah. where people don't really seem to, to, to care. Mm. And then there's the other side of things. What real motivation does, let's say, the U.S. government have? I can see the European one because it's a different story. But the U.S. government have for regulating these types of data protection when they are ultimately the end consumer of that. If they need anything, they go to Facebook and say, hey, Zuck, we're going to need this now or you're going to jail. Yeah. And it's kind of a... Yeah, it's a well. That that analysis sort of assumes that everybody in government wants to suck up as much personal data as possible, 
And that's not actually the truth. I have, uh, through my work, spent a lot of time talking with people in the intelligence agencies. And based on those interactions, I can say that the perception that the government wants to sort of see everything at all times and intrude on our privacy in a way that you or I would consider to be needless is actually a sort of unfounded uh, perception. You think individual members of the government or the government as a whole? For instance, a mob doesn't want to burn a car, but somebody wants to burn a car. So then the mob goes and burns the car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly there is that idea of sort of uh, eminence coming out of not uh, individuals, but groups. Uh, I'd say that there, there is enough of a voice within government. Certainly on the legislative side, there are a number of Congress people who uh, care seriously uh, about privacy. There are inspector generals in every federal agency that uh, look at data management policies and data collection policies. Even the Department of Homeland Security, uh, which uh, has um, not the best history of, uh, you know, sort of surveillance practices, will do a privacy impact assessment of every new surveillance technology that they that they that they adopt. I think, as again, I'm you know, I'm 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 seeing that you've got somewhat of the the pessimistic take on things, which I share very much, and so. My natural instinct is to give you the sort of opposing side. I think the, the optimist in me says that, you know, there, there will be more of a consciousness and a sensitivity to these issues as groups come to realize just how much power this technology gives us. And we're also seeing a lot of legislative action. San Francisco, for example, tech capital of the world, just implemented a very robust municipal ordinance that places a set of rigorous and very reasonable controls on the use of surveillance technology by any city agency. And that ordinance also uh, includes a total ban on the use of facial recognition by any any government um, agency. Uh, That's a positive sign. That's a step in the right direction. We didn't see ordinances like that a couple of years ago. And now the seed of Silicon Valley is at the forefront of, of pushing for that. And we also have an independent judiciary. The ACLU, uh, for example, when it sees a government agency or a local government using a surveillance technology in a way that violates the constitution, they will take it to court. And often they will win. And as a result of that, we have all sorts of privacy protections now that we didn't used to have. For example, the, the Supreme Court recently ruled that law enforcement could not get your cell phone company to hand over an archive of your location data without a warrant. Before then, law enforcement agencies around the country submitted thousands of requests for people's location data without having to submit a warrant for it. That's changed. That's a step in the right direction. So again, Playing a little bit of the devil's advocate, I want to be the optimist, your pessimist. But if you were being overly optimistic about all of this stuff, I can assure you I'd be taking on, uh, uh, on, on your side of the discussion. Yeah, the, the big problem I have is the slippery slope. Mm-hmm. We had, we had uh, 9-11 and mm-hmm. look at the landslide that changed in sure. everything after that. Every, every terrorist attack, mm-hmm. big or small, is a slippery slope towards 1984. And with mm-hmm. power, power rarely cuts back on itself it only yeah. grows yeah so that's that's my big deal sure. what technology what technologies are you most optimistic about outside of what we talked about today that's a good question um well you know again i i, I think that drones can be used in all sorts of uh, positive ways i think that if you employ artificial intelligence responsibly you can do all sorts of incredible things, uh, not just in terms of holding governments to account, but, you know, uh, speeding up the process of diagnosing illnesses. And so that's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty common one. There are reasons to be, to embrace some of this stuff, but the missing ingredient, I think the part that we really haven't been so good at in the past is that we have charged toward the development of a particular technology with one narrow application in mind. 
So for the sake of argument, I will invent uh, a scientist who is developing a computer vision algorithm to detect early stage cancer. And they are narrowly focused on that particular goal and they develop a really formidable capability as a result. Well, as it turns out, that exact algorithm can just as easily be used to uh, count the number of protesters at a legal, peaceful rally and then track them back to their houses so that now you have a perfect list of the home addresses of everyone who participated in this rally. The, the, the scientist in this analogy was aware that that was a possibility, but said, that's not my problem because I'm- I think a lot of times they don't even think about it. They're just optimist. Yeah, or they'll say, well, you know, that's not what I'm developing. I'm developing it, developing it for a positive application. I've heard that many, many times from people I've spoken to in the, in the technology space. Well, you know, we're only using this technology for military applications, so we have no reason to worry about the privacy stuff because it's never going to make that jump. I think if we just look at history a little bit and see that that has rarely been the case, that maybe we could be a little bit more responsible in how we develop these technologies. And Lord forbid, even develop protections before the technology is deployed rather than whiplash and try and rush a policy, something that's very difficult in this fragmented uh, political age, once the cat is out of the bag, so to speak. Do you think humans are capable of that? A lot of times I would argue that we need, like for instance, to unify people on earth, we're going to need aliens to attack because we need someone else to hate so that we can join together. There has to be some type of motivating factor to get people, because human beings are inherently lazy. What we want to do is survive in the easiest way possible. That's what we've evolved to do. Mm. And anything that violates that, if it doesn't really affect our survival, well, shoot, I'm going to go to McDonald's yeah, and I'm going yeah. to get more. Well, it's possible we're getting to a point where surveillance actually is an existential threat, you know, on the scale of climate change or nuclear weapons. Now, the jury's still out when it comes to climate change, but suddenly when it came to nuclear weapons, there was a global movement uh, calling for nuclear test treatments. And for the better part of 40 years, a lot of those non-proliferation treaties actually worked very well. Because while humans are lazy, we recognize that there was an existential threat. It's possible but we still, we still weren't able to give up that advantage we had and start yeah, destroying but you know, there are the only, what is it, a dozen countries that have nuclear weapons. And not every country has nuclear weapons. And there's well, we ha we've got like 10,000. Yeah. Oh, no. Look, it's, it's a huge problem. Yeah, it's a... uh, there, were, there were measures and pretty drastic measures taken to counter the threat. In one sense, the, the cat with surveillance technology is completely out of the bag. The cat with nuclear weapons is completely out of the bag. There's no putting it back in the bag. But again, trying to be the optimist here, um, you know, if we get to a point where we realize that it's an existential threat, then we'll, we'll, we'll try and act. I'm not ruling out the possibility that it will never get to that point and we will just find ourselves in a world where personal privacy is uh, eroded to a point of non-existence. But I'm, I'm not yet ready to rule it out. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example of this book I just wrote. There have been numerous instance, instances of law enforcement agencies uh, trying to employ this very, very powerful all-seeing aerial surveillance technology over their cities. And they haven't. And they haven't because of public pushback. It wasn't because of some moral compunction that suddenly caused them to hold back and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do it. It was because the population actually rose up and said, no, we don't want this. This is a step too far. We understand that privacy is important. We understand that law enforcement has to do what law enforcement do and try and reduce crime in our city. But we don't want an unblinking, persistent, all-seeing eye flying over our heads. That was a step too far. Uh, in fact, there is at the moment no uh, single city that at least has a public wide area airborne surveillance program. There may be cities that have secret ones, 
And the reason for that is because there has been a democratic process where the population has said no and governments have listened. I feel like with autonomous vehicles, the easiest way to get them to roll out, because no one's going to get into a car where I tell you, so here's this trolley problem. We've got these old ladies and these little kids over here, so we can't hit that. So I'm going to drive you into a wall instead. Nobody's going to hop into that car. We have to lie to them and tell them we're going to run over those guys and you'll be safe. Mm. So the easiest way to roll out something like that would be via a lie. And then, oh, guess what? Actually, that's not how it is. But now everything's perfectly safe. Could you see a situation where that happens with surveillance? Let's not talk about it until everything's perfect. And oh, look, we got rid of 99% of the crime we had. Isn't this incredible what we accomplished? No, I don't think so. Because we have investigative journalists, we have community activists, we have lawyers, we have uh, groups like the Project on Government Oversight and the ACLU, civil society at large. Uh, All of those actors in a democratic system act to make sure that that doesn't happen. And they've been pretty good at making sure that doesn't happen in the past. Not saying it's perfect, but I have faith in them, that, that process. I think, in fact, the, mo- the moment we begin to lose faith in civil society and media and community activism, uh, then we're in trouble because then those forces are undermined. Uh, the second that we say, well, the media is biased, uh, the media only has fake news, then we lose the power of the fourth estate. And the reason the fourth estate is important is because the second uh, an investigative reporter gets a tip off that the city of Baltimore, for example, is using a military grade surveillance camera. They rush to their office, do a bunch of fact checking calls, get a comment from the BPD, the Baltimore Police Department, and then run a story. And then the community sees that story and says, oh my goodness, Baltimore Police Department is spying on us. We need to do something about that. And they make demands that this program be canceled, and then the program gets canceled. That is actually something that happened in Baltimore in August of 2016 while I was writing the book. And now Baltimore doesn't have wide area aerial surveillance. (laughs) But if everyone had said, oh, no, there's a conspiracy uh, that the media wants us to, you know, unthink all these things that aren't actually true. And everyone had seen that uh, investigative report and said, oh, no, that's a biased journalist. We have no reason to believe her. Then that wouldn't have happened. So if anything, I, I think that we double down on the, the measures that we have in place. And that is our best chance. How dangerous is Trump's fake news rhetoric? Do you think we're at a tipping uh, point or do you think that will recover? I, I don't want to get into that. You know, I'm, I'm, okay. not a, I'm not an expert on Trump's rhetoric. I, I, you know, I talk about surveillance technology. So I'd, I'd leave that for other experts on your show. Not a problem, not a problem. Two last questions. So related to local journalism that we were talking about in the bonus episode, bonus questions, what do you think about this rise of billionaires buying news organizations, so to speak, in terms of how that potentially affects the media? Is it a good, good progression, bad progression, neutral? Again, uh, Matt, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a media academic, um, so I'll, I'll leave that question to somebody else. Not a problem, not a problem. This has been a This has been a super fun one. If you were going to leave people with one quote, one call to action, what would it be and why? Well, by my book, I think that could be a good... (laughs) We'll get get to that too. Don't worry. That that, that could be a a good start. Um, You know, read the news. I think that I know it can be really demoralizing to read the news these days. And there is often an, an, an instinct to sort of turn away in, in an act of, of, of cynicism, but it's, it's a civic duty. That being said, if you feel like you read the news too much, then give yourself a two-week break from the news. When you come back, it'll all still be there, but just give yourself a break. Do something else. Go hiking. And I can assure you when you come back, you'll be even better prepared to fight the good fight. And I'm going to double down on that and say, even if you don't feel like you read the news too much, if you are someone who's on the news or social media a lot, try a two-week break and see how you feel after. It'll give you a, it'll give you a lot of perspective either way on how your life is and where you want it to go. I couldn't agree more. This has been a fun one. Where can people find you, the book, check it out, 
get themselves a drone, have some fun? Yeah, certainly. So um, you can find my book at any major bookstore. You can also uh, order it online if you type in my name and Eyes in the Sky. I'm sure you'll include a link uh, when you post this podcast. You can also order the audiobook, which was read by the great LJ Ganser. It's a really fun listen if you commute a lot, if you're on the road a lot. You can also uh, check out my personal website, arthurholandmichelle.com. That has uh, updates about my uh, ongoing book tour and my other projects that I have going on. And if you're really interested in drones, uh, you can check out the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College. If you Google that, our website will uh, come out. We've got a lot of really useful information on everything from Amazon's drone plans to counter drone technology to military drone proliferation. We continue to put out a number of really cutting edge research reports uh, on some of the most pressing policy challenges when it comes uh, to drones. And we also have a a really cool newsletter that goes out on Monday mornings, which is, uh, I think, uh, one of the better ways to stay on top of everything that's happening in uh, the world of drones. You can subscribe to that uh, on our website. I think that's it. What is Bezos planning with drones? (laughs) Well, they actually just released a new design for their Amazon Prime Air delivery drone system. It's a pretty unusual design. I encourage you to Google it and uh, you'll see that it doesn't really look like a drone that you could buy on Amazon. The hope is that it will be there for those last mile deliveries. So you have a fulfillment center that is perhaps only five miles as the crow flies from the consumer that just pressed, clicked buy on that iPad case. Instead of having a van take a really meandering circuitous route to try and uh, include as many other people who've bought goods in that same area, a drone will get uh, that iPad case placed in its underbelly. It'll take off, shoot right over to you, drop the, the, the package with a tether and fly right back in 15 minutes or less. And in theory, it could even be much, much cheaper than the other delivery methods. So that's the vision. There are still a lot of technical and regulatory challenges, uh, but it's all happening. And it'll be a much more sustainable way of doing it if we pull it off. I imagine they would use solar or something similar. Yeah, let's hope. This has been a fun one, Arthur. Thanks for coming on. Guys, if you have enjoyed this, you know what to do. If you run a company or startup and you're interested in advertising, you think that your product or mission would be something that our listeners would be interested in and we'd actually support, then reach out, Matt at, the dis- Matt at disruptors.fm. And until next time, I'll talk to you guys soon. Cheers. Okay, man. Thank you. Every episode I ask each of the past 120 plus incredible guests that we've had on the program, what technologies and trends they're most worried about and why? Well, we've put together a guide for you guys. If you're interested, disruptors.fm slash risk. Enter your email address and you'll get the 11 biggest problems facing humanity, the existential and societal threats threatening all of us so that we can think about these together and collectively build towards a better future. Disruptors.fm slash risk. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.